try that. Wow, thank you, Isaac. <clears throat> We're studying in the book of 1 Peter and uh, finding frequent references to suffering. And it's almost as if the Lord knew and uh, inspired Peter to write to people who are going to be suffering. Now my flesh says, what right does a Christian have to suffer? After all, we're God's child. We ought not be suffering. Jesus died for us. We're his children. We ought to be receiving his blessings, not suffering. Well, what Peter is introducing to us is a plan that's ingenious. It's, it, it's remarkable when you understand that God has a divine purpose behind our suffering. Now, does God love us? Does God love you? I'd say yes. And now you say, well, wait a minute, but, but you don't understand the life I've had. I've had a lot of suffering in my life. Well, I can prove to you that God loves you because the Bible says in John 3, 16, He loved the world so much, He gave His only Son to die for us. Now, I had a son die. He was almost nine months old. He died from meningitis. I was never asked to give him up. God didn't come to me and say, I want you to give me your son. He never did that. Because quite frankly, I'm not sure I could. But God the Father gave his son to die a horrible, shameful death. Because apart from that death, you and I would spend an eternity burning in hell because of our sins. So Jesus became that sacrifice for us. And that is what Peter's unpacking. He's taking this concept of suffering and says, why do we have to suffer? 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7, he writes, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice verse 7. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. This morning I've entitled this message, The End is Coming. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your love. And Lord, it's been demonstrated in so many ways. Lord, when we are suffering, sometimes we fail by faith to believe even that you're a good God. Forgive us for that, Lord, because we are just so immature, not understanding the purpose behind our suffering. Lord, would you help us this morning? Give us insights that we can better understand what this suffering is all about. 
that you might be glorified in it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently I read this. This is a local priest and a pastor stood by the side of the road holding up a sign that said, The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. They planned to hold up the sign to each passing car. Leave us alone, you religious nuts, yelled the first driver as he sped by. From around the curve, they heard a big splash. Do you think, said one clergy to the other, we should just put up a sign that says bridge out instead? <laughs> we've, all seen, we've all seen people mocking at the end. The end is coming. They think we're a bunch of religious nuts. <laughs> you see it on TV. You see it on the news. The end is coming. And they, and they, ref, they, they oftentimes couch it in biblical terminology. Armageddon. And then there's laughter behind it. Well, call me old school. Call me hyper-religious. Call me what you want. But I'm one of the ones that still believe the Bible. And I believe that the end is, in fact, coming. And it's been prophesied since the foundation of the world. And the reason the end is coming is because there is a bright and beautiful and perfect world coming. When Adam and Eve sinned, they introduced into this world something that had never been before. They introduced sin. Now they did not comprehend it completely. All they thought they were doing was just getting what they wanted. But God said you can have anything out there of the fruits of the field, all the trees and joy, and they must have been spectacular. I just got spoiled with peach cobbler for my birthday. Oh, was it glorious? But I'm telling you, the peaches that I had were wonderful, but nothing compared to what they would have been in the Garden of Eden. I mean, the Garden of Eden is kind of like the peaches we used to get over in the west, western, western slope, where you get this peach, and it just gets close to your mouth, and you're drooling already, and when you take the bite, it just comes all down in the front of you, you know, just that incredibly sweet flavor of peach. So in the Garden of Eden, you could said, you've got any fruit you want, except one. Which fruit do you think Adam and Eve wanted? They wanted the one they were told they couldn't have. That's our nature. You can't do that. All of a sudden, you want to do that. And so they partook. They introduced sin into the world. With that sin also came death. They didn't realize it, but they died spiritually at that moment. And then sometime later, they died physically. The end is coming. In verse number 7, the end of all things is at hand. And he gives the beginning of some necessary responses to the times. The end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober. Watch unto prayer. And we know what sober means. It means don't be drunk. Well, but what's the understanding behind that concept? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that the Bible's true and that the end is, in fact, coming. Now, in the time that this was written, they lived not too many years prior to the invasion of Rome. And in 70 A.D., 
Rome came in and obliterated Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And so, so there's a prophecy here that had an immediate fulfillment of the end being the destruction of Rome in 70 AD. But that was only a prototype. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy was going to be coming in the future time. So we're to acknowledge, in fact, that the end is coming. The Lord Jesus is going to rapture his own. We're going to be in heaven for seven years, as on earth there's going to be great tribulation for seven years. At the end of that time, the Lord's going to come again at the Battle of Armageddon, destroy all the unsaved, ushering into a thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. Now, I know I've just covered a whole lot of territory. Suffice it to say, the Bible says the end is coming. We need to learn how to respond to that. What's he say? Well, in James 5.8, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The Lord's coming. We think He's coming soon. What are we supposed to do? He says here, we need to be patient and establish our hearts. The word patient here means long-spirited or long-suffering. Don't be a reactor to everything. Don't, 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 don't jump at everything. Just understand, God's got this. You're going to see some things come down the pike that are going to surprise you. The world's going to get worse and worse, not better and better. The, poli the politicians are going to do some of the craziest things. You're going to say, what is going on with the world? Well, i got good news for you. What's going on was prophesied a long, long time ago. The end is coming near. What's our response to be? Be patient. Be patient. And establish your heart, which means to strengthen or set fast your heart. Get established and realize God is still in control and has everything, everything in His hands. Secondly, in 1 Peter 4, 5, You who shall give account to Him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. You who shall give account to Him that is ready to judge. There is a reality that we will face judgment when He returns. There's going to be a judgment for all. But here's the blessed news. For all who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the judgment that we will face is called the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ in heaven is going to be a time where our works are going to be evaluated. And those works that were done in the flesh, not for His glory, are going to burn away. But those works that we did for His glory are going to remain. We'll receive rewards. But not one of our sins will be brought up. You know why? Because they're all under the blood of Jesus Christ. They will not be brought back. They are done away with. They were done away with, not just covered like in the Old Testament. They're done away with at the cross. And by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, your sins are done away with. You will never answer for those in heaven Glory to God. But for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who refuse to trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, there will be a judgment for them as well. And that will be much later, a place called the Great White Throne Judgment. The Bible says the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself will be the judge. 
And one by one, the unsaved will stand before him, and they will receive punishment for their works, their sins, and then be cast in to an eternal lake of fire. Two judgments. A judgment where my works are judged for rewards, and for the unsaved, a judgment to determine their level of eternal punishment in hell. There's a reality. Judgment is coming. Therefore, because the time is short, and because the closer to his return, the more trouble Christians are going to face, we're told to live soberly. The word means to think clearly. It's the opposite of the effect of alcohol, too much alcohol. Now, I can't speak from experience, but I've known enough people and been around enough people that have been under the effects of alcohol to know that it clouds your thinking. You no longer think the way you do before you're under the influence of alcohol. Because we're getting close to his return, we need to think clearly, he said. In Romans 13, 2, he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. In other words, he uses this, this, this picture. He says, put off the old man and put on the new. It's like, it's like taking a set of clothing. You take off the old clothes and you put on the new. Well, what are the old clothes? It's the old man. It's that old nature. That old nature that wants to sin. That old nature that wants to do things in the flesh. Put that off and instead take and put on the new, the life of Christ. Believers should be characterized by a gentle and pleasant spirit. Philippians 4, 5, let your moderation, the word moderation here means to be moderate or appropriate and patient. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. In other words, because the time is short, because the Lord is at hand, because, can I say, the end is near, we need to have pleasant and gentle spirits. Now, that goes totally contrary with what the world is dishing out. The world is all worked up and chaotic. Man alive, blood pressure is going sky high because of all the horrible things that are going out there. Man, it's really bad out there, getting worse and worse and worse. Traffic! Do you believe the traffic out here? It's crazy. And by the way, whoever the traffic engineers are, why is it that they have to tear up all the roads at the same time? I understand that. Do you know what our response to all that is supposed to be? A gentle and a pleasant spirit. In 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or when Jesus returns. Take control of your mind. Some of our minds are racing out of control, worries and fears. He says, take control of that. Bring them into captivity. Think clearly and find strength today in the grace that's soon coming. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may 
devour. He wants to put in condemning thoughts in your mind, so you take control. What thoughts should you have in your mind? I already told you. I'm loved. God loves me. That's the thought. You know what Satan wants to tell you? You're not loved. You're despicable. You're not worth anything. If God loved you, he wouldn't let you go through all this. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God does love me. It also tells me to expect trials, to expect persecution, because he loves me. Take control of your mind. Next, live a life of faith and love, being secure in your salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 and following, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Don't let the devil tempt you discourage you into doubting your salvation? Did you or did you not put your faith and trust in Christ? If you did, then stop allowing the devil to convince you you're not saved. Then he says in verse number 7, watch unto prayer. Basically it means it's time to pray. The end is coming. It's time to pray. The immediacy of the time should cause us to pray. In Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. That little phrase, continuing instant, simply means be earnest or be constantly diligent to be in prayer. We should take prayer seriously. Diligently maintaining an active prayer life Prayer should be that, that, that communication that flows so freely. It's almost second nature with us. Why is it that we can talk to anybody in the world? We can talk to somebody at Walmart. We can talk to the person at the gas station. We can talk to our friends and relatives, our enemies. We have a hard time talking to God. Why is that? He wants us to communicate with him. He wants us to fellowship with Him. He wants us to unload our cares and burdens on Him. For He careth for you. We're to pray at all occasions, in all seasons. Ephesians 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And we're to pray earnestly. In Colossians 4, 2, he says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. I looked it up. I wasn't sure. This word continue means to be earnest toward. In other words, it's not just, okay, it's time to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. God bless the missionaries. Amen. Did you happen to notice that the prayers in the Bible that were answered were typically prayers of someone crying out to God. Someone that was emotionally invested in their prayer. 
someone that acted like they really needed it, instead of just checkboxing, checking a box on, on a list of requirements, earnestly pray. In verse number 8, 1 Peter 4, he says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Of course, charity is, is from the Greek word agape, and agape is that selfless love. It's that love that Jesus had for us when he died on the cross, a giving of himself love. It's the kind of love that husbands are to be to their wives, selfless love. Have fervent charity, intentional, a nonstop love, he said. Above all things, have fervent charity. So loving others in the church is our most important command. Now, I'll be honest with you, this, this concept only resonated with me recently, last couple of years. I'm under the impression, and correct me some other time, <laughs> but I believe that we see in the New Testament a greater admonition to love one another in the church body than we even do to love them out there. And I had a hard time with that at first until I understood if we're not loving each other, we're not going to have the spiritual energy we need to testify out there. If we're not strong in our faith because we're encouraging one another here, we're not going to open up our mouths out there. So we need to have this agape, this, this, this Christ-like love for one another. Love is evidence of one's spiritual maturity. How mature are you? <laughs> You're still praying planks, <laughs> playing pranks. <laughs> How mature are you spiritually? Colossians 3.14, Above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Love is evidence of being spiritually mature. In 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. I could say, love is evidence of God working in us and through us. If you are not loving, then you, be, you are stopping up the channel of love that God wants to be through you. You see, God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Well, then Jesus went to heaven. Now we are to be His conduit of love to others. Love is evidence of God working in and through us, and love is the result of obedience to the truth. In 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. You obeyed the truth. Now love one another. It's a result of obedience to the truth. Love enables an imperfect church family to work together and to maintain unity. Let me just dispel a myth. Hope Baptist Church is not a perfect church. Now, for all of those of you who thought that it was, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. We're not a perfect church. 
We don't have perfect members, and you're definitely not pastored by a perfect pastor. We're imperfect. So how in the world are we expected to have the unity that's commanded in the Scriptures? The body of Christ is to be unified. How in the world can that happen? We're not perfect. We're all a bunch of independent thinkers. How are we to be unified? Ah, he tells us. Through love. Sin and bad, hap, bad attitudes like envy, bitterness, jealousy can destroy a church. But love purposely creates a way to continue allowing us to work together in unity. Proverbs 10.12, hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. You see, love blinds itself from the shortcomings and sin failures of others as much as possible. There will be times when their sin needs to be confronted, but usually it's better to allow love to be that purifying agent in their life. We get really thin-skinned sometimes. When we get hurt by the least little thing, he says, that's not right. We ought not be that way. We ought to be loving to them and be willing to give them some credit. So they said something that hurt your feelings. Maybe, do you think it's possible they weren't feeling good? Is it possible they had been through a bad time themselves? Is it possible they weren't thinking clearly? Is it possible what they said wasn't the way you took it in the first place? Is it possible that you, in loving them, should give them the benefit of the doubt and allow them to say some things without holding them to such a scrutiny? You offended me. How about, ah, I sure love you. How about, how about I'm going to love you regardless? I'm glad the Lord loved me regardless and didn't wait for me to get perfect. Love, as much as possible, hides the offenses of others. And this is critical. Love is a work of the Spirit. In 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 17, 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. In other words, love never repeats offenses to others. Can I tell you what happened to me? So-and-so just said this about me. I can't believe it as I'm telling somebody else about that offense. No, that's not love. That's not love. Love never repeats offenses to others. And bottom line, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, the love chapter. Love, charity, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love can take it. Love can take it. I can take it. I'm not going to get all angry every time somebody says something to me. I can take it. Why? Because I'm going to choose instead to love. The end is coming. How are Christians supposed to react? In love. In verse number 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. 
In other words, be willing to serve one another by hosting them with a grateful heart. We should be willing to entertain others without grumbling about the expense and the work involved. Hospitality can be a very effective tool in softening people's hearts. In Romans 12, 12 and 13, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. And then he says, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. We should pursue opportunities to socialize with others, to find times away from church, just to have a cup of coffee together, dessert or a meal together, and just talk. I have found that entertaining others is a very important ministry. In 1 Timothy 3.2, a bishop, a pastor, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And we should look for opportunities to entertain guests. Hebrews 13.2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. As I said, you can learn so much about people over a meal, over coffee. You can develop bonds, friendships so much better, more in-depth, by just having some casual time with them. By the way, you can convey true love by giving someone your time. And your attention. In verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every man's received the gift, he said. Well, what's the purpose of the gift? To minister to others. There are a couple interpretations here. I believe that both can be very applicable, and so I'll give you both. First of all, the gift can represent, I believe, your gift of salvation. It's called a gift in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. So salvation is called a gift. We are to share our gift with others, both by sharing the gospel to the lost and by living the effects of the gift upon our lives. We're to share it. We got saved. That wasn't just for you. It's to share with others as well. But secondly, the gift can speak of that which is imparted by the Holy Spirit at salvation. So you get saved. The Bible talks about the Spirit of God giving us spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church. Varied gifts. We were given spiritual gifts for the benefit to use in the church family. Those gifts are things like teaching, serving, giving. The Bible talks about several different kinds of spiritual gifts. God wants us knowledgeable of our spiritual gifts, so we in turn can use them to bless others. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Paul says, I want you to understand these spiritual gifts so you can use them. There are different gifts for different ministries in the church. To help the church to be effective 
and ministering one to another. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Can you imagine? We all have the same gift. Whoa, it would be a royal pain if we all had the same gift. No matter what gift that would be, let's just say we all have the gift of prophecy. In the New Testament, I believe that means telling the truth. Taking the Word of God and telling the truth. Not whitewashing it, not, be, not, not giving any gray areas. Everything is black and white. Black and white. Everything black and white. No easing into it. It's just black and white. We've all got the gift of prophecy. We would hate each other. We would quit this church in a heartbeat. Not because we're not telling the truth. It's because we can't stand that much truth all at one time. See, God gave prophecy and then somebody else mercy. So that merciful person can come by and say, oh, it's going to be okay. I know that person said the truth to you, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> mercy. And then serving. What if somebody spills something? We think the prophet's going to clean it up? No way. The prophet's going to say, hey, somebody needs to take care of this. But the gift of serving, the one who gives serving, is already out there finding something to come and bring and clean it up. They weren't told. It's in their nature. God gave it to them. We need all the different gifts to work together. We are to be a revelation to the world of God. Lastly, verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As believers. We are to reflect the nature of Christ to the world. If they're not going to see Christ in us, where are they going to see it? When we speak, our words should resemble the Word of God. The oracles of God phrase means the words or Word of God. Our words should reflect God's goodness. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. <laughs> I was with somebody yesterday, and uh, they would occasionally allow a foul word to come out of their mouth. And then, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor, I shouldn't have said that. Well, you're right, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and believers ought not to allow evil communication. Bad words, bitter words, condemning words, um, words not of faith. Our words should reflect the goodness of God. And our words should be appropriate, full of grace. Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. People ought not worry that you're going to bite their head off. They not live in fear that what you're going to say next, the next time you meet them, are you going to blow them away in anger? They ought not fear that from you. Not if you are going to reflect the nature of Christ. Isn't it interesting? The nature of Christ was so loving that the little children came running to him and wanted to be around him. 
He had such an, an incredible winning nature. When we serve others, we should do it in God's strength, not our own. The word ability here, um, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. It means power or might or strength. We're to do it in his might. The only heart affecting ability we have, the only way we can change somebody's heart is through the power of God. Not our words, not our persuasion. It's going to be God or not at all. In 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, Paul said, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That your faith should be in the power of God. When you're going to see somebody's life changed, it's not because of what you said, it's going to be what he said through you. Power of God. Our fight must be through God, not in our flesh. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our fight must be in Him, not the flesh. Not the flesh. Not getting offended every time. Not, not taking upon uh, all these causes. But our fight needs to be against our enemy. And our enemy is the devil himself. There's our fight. And we can't do that in the flesh. And then as we reflect his nature, God is glorified. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I want there to be glory in the church. I want the church to be a place that glorifies Christ. As we respond to the times, <laughs> the end is coming. <laughs> As we respond, the way Peter addresses us, in him, the church brings glory to Christ. As we respond to the times, apart from him, in our flesh, not only is he not glorified, but the devil receives more control. Conclusion. How do we... Uh, Respond in the end times. First of all, grow in patience and strength. You're going to need it. You're going to find it in God's Word and in a relationship with Him. Grow in patience and strength. Secondly, put off the old man and put on the new. When you wake up in the morning, just assume that you're in the flesh. You better really quick like put on the new. <laughs> because if you don't, the old man is pretty much going to direct your life. You're going to be miserable throughout the day. Something's going to hit you, and you're going to reflect back, re react back to them in anger. And at the end of the day, you're going to say, what happened? I was in the flesh all day. Right. You didn't put on the new man. Pray. 
pray earnestly. Bear ye one another's burdens. We ought to be praying for each other. When we share prayer requests, that's not just a time filler. That's because we're concerned for one another. We're praying for the church to grow, to be more effective in reaching the lost. That ought to be an earnest prayer. Love one another. Don't look around. But if you were to look around, do you love those around you? Word of love. Serve others. And then lastly, we are to reflect God's image to the world. I could hold a sign on 34. The end is near. Or I could respond the way that God has told us to respond as the end gets closer. And my hunch is I could be a whole lot more effective for God if I do it His way. So how are things for you? Have you acknowledged, first of all, that the end is near? I believe the Lord's coming soon. I really do. Now, in saying that, I don't know if that means this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, a few years from now. I don't know. But I believe it's a whole lot closer than it was. And with that in mind, we need to prepare. How do we do it? By the very methods that Peter gave us this morning. I didn't talk a whole lot about it this morning, but, su but suffering is all part of Peter's discussion. And in this end times discussion has to include suffering. And if you're suffering today, my heart goes out to you. And I'm sorry. And we very possibly, if we've known about it, have already prayed for you. We'll continue to do so. If not, we'd love to pray for you. The question I have for you, if you're suffering now or if you're about to suffer, will you respond the way you're supposed to? And that's not by getting bitter at God, but instead understanding that God has a divine purpose behind that suffering to make you more like Him, to identify you as one of His own. Jesus suffered for us. Why should any less be expected of us? We need to pray. We need to ask God to take these truths and to drive them deep into our souls. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your love, and I thank you for this time. And Lord, this concept that we're discussing here this morning of preparing for the end times is a bit challenging, but necessary. Lord, Spirit of God, would you give us a clarity to understand these truths that we might be most effective for you during these times? Lord, it's easy for us to get overwhelmed as we watch the news and we realize how crazy and chaotic the world has become. It seems like, how could any good come from this? And yet, when we read your scriptures, we understand that this was all prophesied a long, long time ago. And from your perspective, everything's all right. You've got this. So help us, Lord, to respond according to your will. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. For just a moment, I want you to consider what's been said today as the Spirit of God spoke into your heart. Inside of you has the Spirit been working as I've been sharing the Word of God. What's He trying to teach you this morning? Are you, in fact, preparing for His coming? 
As you came through the doors this morning into this auditorium, did you come with the knowledge that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? Or is there some doubt? I wonder how I would never call somebody's name out. I'd never embarrass anyone. But I would hate for someone to leave this morning without knowing for sure that heaven is their home. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die, but I want to. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that? With nobody looking around. Put that hand up so I can see it. Pastor, pray for me. I don't know for sure, but I want to know how to go to heaven. Anybody like that? Dear Lord, you know exactly what we need. So would you continue working in our hearts? Would you continue helping us to prepare for your coming? Because we want our lives to glorify you in every aspect. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.